The Icelandic Roots community was interested about what's going on with all of the recent volcanic eruptions. So, Owen and I connected with Julian Lozos to discuss all things relating to Icelandic volcanoes. Hope you enjoy. This is just part one of our two-part podcast with Julian. Check out part two on the Icelandic Roots podcast. Three, two, one. Hello, uh, Icelandic Roots family. Thanks so much for uh, coming to join in. We know you guys are uh, probably about as excited as we are uh, with all the crazy chaos and action and molten lava flowing across the land of fire and ice as we speak. Uh, very excited to have a uh, guest, Julian Lozos, a geologist from the state of California, uh, working at the university with Jason, who has uh, generously hooked us up. So, Julian, thanks so much for uh, spending some time with us this morning, right before Christmas. I know things are chaotic. Right on. Obviously, lots of fun and exciting stuff going on at the island. So, um, it's definitely been an uh, exciting thing to follow from a geologist standpoint, um, not just the most recent stuff, but over the last few years. Um, so, like, as a geology professor like one of iceland is an, an example place that i use in like all of my tectonics classes just talking about how plates are moving apart and how there's also basically a flamethrower of molten stuff coming from the mantle right below uh-huh. it's a very interesting geologic setting what is basically happening now is um, a really really obvious manifestation of these tectonic plates moving apart. N- normally when you have plates moving apart, like it's usually in the ocean and doesn't become an island, but it's that extra hot spot that's sort of spewing um, extra stuff and it comes out through the gap in the plates and that's why Iceland is there to begin with. What we're seeing now on the Reykjanes Peninsula is kind of a, a manifestation of, of really that spreading is happening in a visible way and is letting all of this lava out. Very cool. Yeah, it's, it's definitely cool, especially since even though there's thousands of kilometers of similar plate boundary, although like without the hotspot um, or in the oceans around the world, it's very rare to actually like catch it happening. Um, so this is this is it's happening. And, uh, I was thinking about this, too, as I was uh, driving up to Gimli today for Christmas. But um, I guess you could technically say Iceland is one of the few countries that is growing in square footage still. Oh, yeah. Versus a lot of the other ones here in the world. Yeah, most of them are uh, staying kind of the same size or um, moving in different directions. Uh, India is getting smaller as it continues to crash into the rest of Asia. But yeah, Iceland is very much getting bigger. Yeah, and it's interesting what you said there with the textbook example that harkens back to uh, uh, when we recorded a podcast with our friend Eric, who uh, visited Iceland with Owen and I, and he said being there, uh, it was kind of surreal because you learn about all these different aspects of Iceland in the geology classes in school. And uh, so much of it is like textbook stuff. So hmm, there, there's a question in there about what aspects of Icelandic geology and volcanism is so textbook because there's different types of volcanoes. Yeah, there, there's differences, right? So what is the most textbook bits of Icelandic volcanic activity. I mean, really, it's the, the the really textbook part is the part where you have that that divergent plate boundary where the Eurasian plate and North American plate are mm-hmm. moving apart. And um, so like pretty much any intro geology textbook that's talking about that, you're going to see a picture of Thingvellir. And um, <laughs> so and actually the first time I went to Iceland, like literally I picked up the rental car. I drove from the airport straight there because I needed to see that first. 
And uh, yeah, so that is um, really that idea of as plates move apart, it lets uh, material from deeper in the earth come up and out is mm-hmm. just extremely textbook. Um, yeah. But at the same time, that added hotspot is weird. So <laughs> it's both doing some things that exemplify like intro plate tectonics and also some stuff that's right, right. not that at all mm-hmm. uh, interesting that you were talking about things that they're there too and it, it, you know you can just tell as soon as you walk up through and seeing that great divide and uh, it's an experience not like no other for sure it uh, certainly invokes a lot of a lot of very cool and strong feelings and especially when you think about like that isn't even like the part right at the near the visitor center isn't even like close to the whole spreading rate it's just since mm. the last time lava covered there and it's moving fast enough that like in at the time of settlement, when the first, you know, parliament was actually happening there, it wasn't as wide as it is now. Mm, yeah. <laughs> crazy. So crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now back to the Reykjanes uh, Peninsula area and this current volcanic activity. From what I understand, and you can elaborate more on this for us, this is a fissure eruption, which is different than those sort of classic, uh, maybe Hollywood depictions of a big pointy volcano and spewing out the lava. So maybe if you could explain to us what these differences are and why it comes to be in such a way. First of all, Hollywood, not someone we should ever trust for volcanoes. Um, but yeah, the, the very typical pointy volcano um, is associated mm-hmm. with a very different kind of plate boundary where you actually, it's kind of the opposite of what's mm-hmm. happening in Iceland, where you have one plate shoving mm-hmm. under the other one. And that kind of condition, it just leads to um, magma and lava that are stickier. And so those kind of pile up into a super pointy volcano. Um, Hmm. But uh, in Iceland, um, because it's basically basically most of the land, especially like on the Reykjanes Peninsula, is closer in chemistry to like rock chemistry to the ocean floor than to most continents. Um, Hmm. And that kind of lava is just really, really runny. It's very, very fluid. Um, so like, even if you, like, I'm sure we've all seen at this point, many, many videos of people like putting things on the lava and it looks kind of sticky. Um, but that Mm. lava is actually very runny compared to many other kinds of lava. Um, and so because it's so runny, like it doesn't necessarily pile up into something pointy. Um, so when you get, um, like the actual, like even something like Hecla, which is pointier than many is still kind of broader sided than than something like Mount Rainier in Washington State or like Mount Fuji in Japan. Um, so that's why you don't necessarily get those really classic volcano shapes. Um, but also just the reason you get the fissures is because, of, again, it's that that things are pulling apart along the line. Um, and so if you think about stretching like anything, it's going to um, you're going to get uh, especially anything that is is not like elastic in and of itself it's not going to just like pull apart like silly putty it's going to get sort of stretch marks and cracks and so those cracks that the eruptions are happening on these fissures are just parallel to the axis of things pulling apart Mm, interesting Um, and this is so um like characteristic for iceland that it actually even in like geoscience textbooks and volcanology textbook is referred to as an Icelandic style eruption, even if it happens somewhere else. <laughs> Interesting. Wow. They, they really have yeah. the uh, monopoly on this form of volcano. <laughs> I mean, occasionally you'll see it called a Hawaiian style eruption, but uh, it, 
It's it's usually referred to as Icelandic style. And what is making this one become such a annual occurrence happening for what in the last three years in this area, and then now twice in the same year, beginning of summer and now recently in the late fall. So this is uh, kind of a renewed period of activity. Um, so if you look mm. at like from a historical standpoint in from about the year 800 to about the year, I think 1240, 1220, I should have looked up the exact years before. <laughs> um, there were the, the Reckonis Elder, the, the fires on the peninsula. And, and actually the Reckonis Peninsula is one of the youngest pieces of land like on the planet. Mm. Um, and so in that period of time, um, basically it was just characterized by mm. these fissure eruptions like regularly, um, over this this span of of like a uh, hundred years or two hundred years, um, and so that was sort of a historical thing. Um, and then you know the lava flows are there, and like if you're flying into Keflavik and it's clear, you can see the just the cracks in the ground. And so obviously geologists were like, we want to know more about how this happens. Um, and so even before all of this stuff started kicking off in late 2020, people were like geologists were like, so let's figure out the the past history of the of the uh, Rekines Elder, like, do they always happen in a very short span of time, or was this weird? And as it turns out, this is like what it does. Um, so pretty much, there there are six major volcanic systems on the peninsula, and sort of what tends to happen is that every eight hundred to thousand ish years, um, like five or six, like five or even all six, will do this in a short period of time. Um, and what's interesting is that the one that wasn't involved in the last round or in many of the ones people analyzed before was Fagardalsfjall, the one that started this series. So like that one hadn't erupted in like 6,000 years, um, but most of the others have, have gone off at intervals of like every 800 to 1,200 years for um, as, uh, you know, as long as people can find the lava flows and date them because they get buried obviously under newer lava flows. So this is like a thing. And, um, and it was, it was always, anytime there's a big thing, there's always the question, well, when is that going to happen again? Like here in California, we talk about the big one on the San Andreas fault all the time. Like, when is that going to happen again? The answer to that is we don't know, but it could happen at literally any time and no one would be able to be scientifically surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with the, the current timeline, um, kind of in, Late 2020 is when earthquake activity started on the peninsula, and and um, people were noticing it. Um, obviously, in Grindavik and like Volgar and closer to that, but also in Reykjavik. Mm -hmm. And um, it, you know, you'd think with the plate boundary that people would be more used to having a lot of earthquakes, but I guess <laughs> maybe that's just my my California experience speaking because we have a lot of little earthquakes. I mean, not a lot like leading up to what's happening there a lot, but like we have earthquakes often enough that don't think about it but um i guess it was kind of unusual um and people started noticing it and just sort of the patterns that the earthquakes were following were these linear patterns that were very much associated with the plate boundary and with where these volcanic systems are and so kind of the first swarm um in late 2020 kind of petered out but then um in March 2021, it picked back up and led to the first eruption, which started in the middle of March of 2021 in Geldinga And it was this little bitty volcano. Like if you've seen the photos of the, the beginning days, it's this like it's cute. It's just cute. It's this little cone and, and there's people like 
cooking hot dogs and playing volleyball in front of it and lots of very good videos. Um, and so, you know, people thought it was going to peter out in a matter of days because it was little, but it kind of went on to be um, a six month long eruption that filled the entire valley and just completely changed the topography there. But what's interesting about that is the uh, the intrusion or the, I guess, the, the Kvikugangar, which is what the, the Icelandic sources have been saying, and the, the uh, dike is the English word, um, is it, it's kind of like a basically a sheet of molten rock coming up through a narrow crack. And when it breaks the surface, it breaks the surface. And so the, the Geldingadal eruption only broke the surface in like a little bit of it. And then um, in summer of 2022, um, the next kind of chunk of that broke in Meradalar. And that one um, mm. started with the same kind of thing where there was a pretty intense earthquake sequence that started on um, July 31st of 2020, 2022. And then like August 1st was tons and tons and tons of earthquakes. And then uh, August 2nd was quiet and August 3rd, the eruption started. Um, and so that one lasted like two and a half weeks and then kind of calmed down. And then this summer, 2023, um, same kind of deal. Um, and the eruption that so there was a, a bunch of earthquakes and then it was like quiet for a day, day and a half. And then the next section of that dike, like moving sort of northwest, uh, broke at Lithlifutr and that eruption lasted about a month. And so all of those were associated with that same line which was Fargadalsfjall. So the current one, um, so sort of one of the questions with the, the three eruptions in Fargadalsfjall was like, so this is the volcano that hasn't been involved in all the previous cycles. Does this mean it does its own thing or are the others going to get involved? Um, and then starting in, so I know the sort of ground deformation, the measurable signal that something's going on down there started in like October and then um, in November, there started being a really, really intense earthquake activity again, but not in the same place as the others, a little further uh, west, um, associated this time with a different volcanic system. So Svartsenge is the next one over, and that is the one where like it goes under the power plant and under the Blue Lagoon and next to Grindavik and kind of up through where the eruption this week happened. Um, and so kind of that kicking off was, you know, oh, yeah, the other systems are probably are getting involved. Um, so we really brought into the like, we might be in for 100 years of this. Yeah. So interesting. Um, but yeah, this one was also like, so there were really, really intense earthquakes in the middle of November to the point where they mm -hmm. led it. it um, yeah, I remember seeing some photos in Grindavik of uh, some roads that are broken open and cars couldn't mm -hmm. go driving through town and yeah those yeah. become really you can see the entire road had just split right open and the concrete was ripped and obviously nobody's driving through that but um yeah. i saw from the guardian this morning that they had downgraded the volcano threat level yeah so that is i mean because the eruption this week did happen and was mm -hmm. kind of wild because there was you know earthquakes in november and they evacuated everyone and then it got really quiet yeah and then um it picked back up again on Monday, and the eruption started like an hour later. Hmm. And this eruption started way bigger. Like it was friggin' four kilometer long fissure is insane. Wow. And it was spewing lava like three to 500 hmm. meters into hmm. the air at first, which is also insane. It's a much larger start okay. than the other three. And it's already stopped. Yeah. Got rid of what it had there 
very quickly and it stopped only like two and a half days later. And so the reason they downgraded the um, the code is um, because it seems <laughs> like probably because the eruption happened um, and the earthquake mm. activity is down. Um, and I've definitely though seen some people act like that might be premature um, because there is still a signal of uplift again. Like there's still evidence of magma accumulating down there, but I mean, down there meaning on the peninsula in general. So I'm, I'm guessing that the, the hope is that because the part of the intrusion that was quite close to Grindavik did already break, that it'll either break in the same spot or not in the town. But I've definitely seen um, just from social media, I've definitely like, the people that I know from Grindavik are really happy to be able right. to spend Christmas at home. And I kind of wonder if that's mm. part of it. Uh, a lot of the scientists I've seen are still like, think this is potentially premature um, to downgrade it um, with the, like the initial downgrade before the, uh, signal that stuff was still flowing under there like that was quite reasonable like the eruption happened mm. it the love is out but mm. if it's coming back in like it it does make me a little nervous that they're just like yeah go home you're cool i guess maybe we could tie into this too um now that i know we kind of went right into the whole eruption and everything there but um mm -hmm. would, uh, did you want to maybe give us a bit of a intro of yourself your connection to iceland and how you kind of got into geology and all that and Give everybody at home kind of a, a background on yourself. So um, I'm a geophysicist at California State University, Northridge. Um, so I think you mentioned that was the uh, same university, um, but uh, no, uh, he's at USC. Um, so we're not, we're in the same mm. city, but we're not at the same university. All right. Jason's going to listen to this. Jason, apologies. I just need to drop that now. <laughs> I got the wrong names. <laughs> Yeah, so I um, my, my most of my work is actually focused on mm -hmm. earthquakes, um, but like all the volcanic activity is, is very, you know, it's really tied to the tectonics. And so I do earthquakes and I do tectonics. Um, I, I do I don't really do much in terms of like mm -hmm. the chemistry of lava. Mm -hmm. I don't do anything in terms <laughs> of the chemistry of lava, um, but I'm really interested in how the movement of tectonic plates informs how um, earthquakes and volcanoes happen. So my specific research is I, I make fake earthquakes on my computer. <laughs> Um, so I have, I have software that is specifically designed to simulate the physics of the earthquake process. And I basically say, okay, I'm going to give you a fault and I'm going to give you some initial conditions, start the earthquake here. Let's see what happens. So that's what I do. Um, and, uh, I can work on any kind of fault system in the world, uh, without leaving California, mm -hmm. which is both a blessing and a curse. Cause I mean, I can study all kinds of things, but it's also harder to motivate, like, oh, give me money to go to this right. place. <laughs> so um, actually, all the I've been to Iceland four times now, um, but all of those times have been basically as vacation, um, just because I want to go. Um, so it's kind of been this sort of iterative thing where um, the first time I went, it was just when it was like an inexpensive layover on the way to a conference mm. in mainland Europe. And I was, it's a place I'd wanted to go for a long time because again, it's in all of the textbooks. And, um, I went and I was there only for three days and I was like, that's not enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> Once you get a little taste of it, you gotta go back. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that was, that was, uh, 2019. And so then obviously, uh, no travel happened mm. the year after that, but with the, and I just like, I want to go back and I know I can't, um, but then in uh, 2021, we, when the Gelding and Dollar eruption was going and like I hadn't left 
LA even in like a year and was kind of going insane. Um, watching this live stream was like, oh, the outside world is real and it's doing things. Um, and so in the summer, I was just like, I need to go see this. Um, so I went back in 2021 specifically to see um, the eruption, but then also to explore more. I was there for a week that time, kind of did the sort of south coast as far as Vic. Um, and, um, you know, just again, getting to know, getting to see more of the landscape and also meeting more people. It was like, oh, this is, you know, I want to, I want to know more. I want to see more than this. And, um, that was also when I was like, I should start learning this language. Um, and then, uh, so that was still only a week. And then it was like, man, we've still only saw the South. I want to see more of it. And so 2022, I convinced different friends to go with me and we drove the whole ring road and we start, we started, um, you know, we, we we went the um, counterclockwise way and um, ended in Reykjavik. And this is significant because we got to Reykjavik on July 31st, 2022, which is the day the earthquake sequence leading up to the Meridala eruption started. So like the first day we were in Reykjavik was just earthquakes and earthquakes and earthquakes and earthquakes, like many, many, many earthquakes. It was wild. Like, and I say this as an earthquake scientist, from California, where we have a lot of earthquakes, I have never felt that many in that short of amount of time before. It was difficult to sleep. Um, it was it was wild. Um, and so that I also, you know, went on Twitter when it was still Twitter and wasn't terrible um, and uh, was, you know, posting about it because like, hey, I'm, you know, by that point, I felt like I could write some basic sentences in Icelandic. And so I was sort of posting about like, hi, I'm, I'm a earthquake scientist and I'm here, uh, I can try to answer some questions. And so that's when I also then started to like make internet contacts with a lot of people who live in Iceland and sort of started talking more with them and got to know some through the internet, some people who, I mean, a bunch of people in Reykjavik, but also some people in Grindavik. And, um, and so, and, and so I was still there when the 2022 eruption started and actually got to see it when it was still in the Fisher stage on like day two which was amazing, genuinely the most incredible thing I have ever seen. Um, and then, uh, so then the sort of the, the joke started to be, well, like, now I have to go see all of them, right? Like it was, one of those, well, you know, if, if, you know, if it happens again, I'm going to have to go, right? Huh? Huh? Or then even a thing like 2022 summer, I had to have a surgery on my hand which was annoying and then it turned out i needed another one this summer or this past summer which was also annoying and i was like haha if i had to have surgery this year and again i should get to go see an eruption again right haha and then there was another one and i'm like it's the i mean this was the summer one and it was like i, I wasn't planning to go to iceland this summer 2023 but it was like the little eruption started and i was like i'm not doing anything next week let's go. So I just spontaneously, most spontaneous large travel I've ever done in my life. And I just went out there and I spent a week, um, again, just like, and that was the time, like I'd been all of these other trips, um, except for the one in 2019, I had stopped in Grindavik and like had gone restaurants there and like that, the grocery store and stuff in preparation to hike. But this time I actually mm -hmm. stayed there for a few days. Oh, so, awesome. um, I have a cousin who works at kind of the, the restaurant cafe that's right downtown <laughs> oh, there. Is it the, like the Papa's, like the pizza one or there's the, oh, I'm forgetting the, the no, Saltusith. 
is a fish one. There was another fish one. I think it was just called <laughs> Fish House. Um, I went to many of the restaurants in Grindavik because it's not <laughs> there's not that many. Not yeah. too big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. It might be the Cafe mm. Brigyang. Oh, I, I that's the one of the ones I didn't make it to. But I remember seeing <laughs> that on there. Um, it could be Papa's. I, I honestly, I can't exactly remember, but <laughs> I probably went to like four or five different restaurants. And I also was like, I can't afford to eat out every single. <laughs> yeah, no, the food's good there, but uh, it's it, it's hard on the pocketbook too. Um, but I guess maybe we'll transition to that since we're talking about Grindavik. Um, were you able to reach out to any friends or locals or people you know there? And uh, how's it been from uh, the perspective of a resident there or kind of what the local impacts have been? The people that I that I know that are based there are obviously having a really mm. stressful time. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. the evacuation, I I think everyone thinks it was handled well and they were glad to get out. But I mean, it was still like being told, like, leave your home immediately is is freaky. It's scary. Like, especially when it's not like a leave your home immediately, there's going to be a storm like and Mm. then you can go back like it's a leave your home immediately and it might become Mm. covered with lava. Yeah, that's intense. I mean, the the last time that happened, where an official opened up in the town was in the uh, in Hemae in the sixties, seventies. Mm-hmm. I should remember the exact year. Um, it was like an ex- a major uh-huh. anniversary of it this year, um, and it was a you know home buried mm-hmm. in lava thing, and that was kind of what was on everyone's mind, is my my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, also, my understanding is like there people, I mean, just everyone really came together and like the people I know who live there, you know, had places to go or like some went to stay with relatives. I know some like they had friends help them find a place in, I think, Reykjavik proper. So it seemed like really everyone came together to help all the displaced folks. But it's just, I mean, I just can't imagine that idea of like leave and your place might be buried under lava. Leave yeah. immediately. I guess the, the closest sort of thing that happens around here in Southern California is leave because the mountain's on fire. Right, right. Um, and but, I can't help yeah. but think about the logistics and maybe this could uh, well segue to any other ideas you have about uh, awareness for uh, populations around earthquake safety, volcano safety. I always think about, you know, uh, of course, in Iceland, uh, they have a certain level of uh, – of education and of economics, right? That these, you know, isn't large populations of people living in impoverished conditions or in, you know, bad infrastructure. So in terms of uh, evacuating a town, it's a smaller population that you have to deal with. Um, They have the infrastructure to get people out of it. They have first and foremost, the awareness um, to know that there's a volcanic eruption that is imminent. And all of these factors, I think, lend to a really high degree of safety in Iceland around these things. And just going back, I would like to make a comment quickly on I was also in Iceland at the start of the uh, early summer eruption to where I was just in Reykjavik to feel the earthquakes. And at first, I had no idea what was happening. I thought it was a big truck driving by or people slamming the doors in the hostel. You know, living in Alberta here, just a landlocked part of the country, I've never really felt earthquakes before, at least that I've been aware of. And this was like you mentioned, 
so many throughout the day. I think I felt like 40 or so. It seemed like every half hour you could almost count on a little rumble to come through to the point where I was almost anticipating it. Is that the one this summer? Yeah, this this last (laughs) summer. Yeah, beginning of July. That to me was really incredible. I didn't go out to see the volcano when it erupted, but just being there to feel the earthquakes was pretty powerful. And I'm always at a lack of words to describe it, but there was one distinct moment where I sort of closed my eyes in the middle of it and I felt as though I could feel the earth. And I just, it was a really kind of strange thing, but knowing that this was coming deep from underground, it also made me feel really small. But I never felt afraid. I felt like the buildings that I were in were safe. I felt like if it was something even more serious, the government and safety officials would be able to get us all to safety. So this is all a bunch of preamble to ask you uh, ideas or thoughts that you have about safety when it comes to these things and the differences that different parts of the world would experience. You could imagine in a place like Los Angeles, where it's so dense with so many people. I couldn't imagine how that would be if you had to evacuate for some sort of, like you said, the big one or something like that, right? So when it's when it's something like a, an earthquake, um, there's no way to know it's going to come. And then when it happens, it has happened. Um, I mean, and there's aftershocks, but like evacuation isn't really a thing that's on the table just mm. for earthquakes. Um, like if there are evacuations around here, it's more related to like wildfires, like not 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 volcanic, just fire fire or uh, sometimes mm-hmm. landslides um, are things that but those are not generally going to result in the evacuation of a huge mm-hmm. area of, of people. Um, so it's a, just really a, a very different mm-hmm. kind of situation. Um, but in terms of like just earthquake preparedness, um, like the, the same kinds of things are good to mm-hmm. think about anywhere. Like, you know, turn off your, well, I guess turning off the gas isn't an issue no. in Iceland because it's all <laughs> geothermal. Like the issue here is if you, mm-hmm. there's gas power and electric power, those can mm-hmm. uh, make fires, um, but that's not going to be an issue there. Um, things like, you know, just secure mm-hmm. your stuff. Um, like I asked, you know, I, I saw later on your list of questions, like the people's thoughts on living in a, mm-hmm. an active area. And one of the responses was just like, this is driving me nuts. Cause all of the stuff keeps coming <laughs> off my shelves. Um, <laughs> can't keep any plates in the top cabinet, <laughs> yeah. but like living in a seismically active area, like there are things you can do to make your stuff less likely to come off your shelves or like here, you know, they say like strap your furniture to the wall, like use those non like those grippy things in the, uh, in the cabinets to keep your stuff from sliding out. Um, so there's things you can do to, to prepare your house or always have like a earthquake kit or a, a go bag. And, and also the, the idea of like during a strong earthquake, you want to drop mm. cover and hold on like that's mm. going to be universal. Like you want to drop down because even if there's a place where the building codes are good, you can mm. still have stuff mm. flying through the air. Um, you want to cover so like under a table or something. So that way, if uh, the stuff when the stuff that's eventually when the stuff that's flying through the air eventually stops flying mm. and starts falling, um, it's going to fall on the table yeah. and not on you. And you want to hold on so your support doesn't get shaken away from you. Mm. And so I think that um, that is universal. Like there's a thing that mm. started in California called the shakeout, which is an earthquake drill. OK. And it started here. But um, I know like 
I checked Iceland doesn't do this yet, but like a bunch of other countries like New Zealand does it like um, I think uh, there's a couple countries in South America like there there mm. are places that do this and just it's a practice like, OK, we're going to you know get under mm. the table and hold on just to get mm. people used to that idea. A, and I, a fire drill and for guess, earthquakes. Yeah. Um, although I guess in, in Iceland, they're having enough moderate sized earthquakes. That they probably don't <laughs> need the drill. They just practice doing it for the real ones. This is not a test. <laughs> yeah. Also, in terms of earthquakes actually like um because the vat like the entire icelandic landscape mm-hmm. is built on lava um that actually helps shaking be less strong interesting um because the harder the rock is so lava is really really hard rock and the harder the rock is the less hard it shakes because like if you can imagine having like a box of granite like solid granite or, and then a box mm-hmm. of like sand. And if you shake those at the same intensity, the sand is going to go all over mm-hmm. the place and the solid rock is going to shake mm-hmm. as a unit. Um, and so the fact that like everything in Iceland is built on solid lava rock, basically, um, that's going to help it actually shake less strongly than it could. Whereas mm-hmm. somewhere where like L.A., we're basically a bowl of sand and it shakes really hard. Um, or places like like Mexico City, which has a lot of really bad earthquakes, is also a, a bowl of so sand. So that's so interesting. So in Iceland, the big one, a big earthquake, is not so much a risk as an earthquake is signifying that there could be a big volcanic eruption. And that's really the um, the thing to look out for in Iceland. Whereas, like you said, in these uh, different locales, Mexico, California, or thinking about Haiti, as well, right? Earthquakes there could just be really catastrophic and not necessarily tied to volcanic activity, just a different, uh, different. I mean, Mexico totally does have volcanoes. I mean, anytime you have a plate boundary, um, you can have earthquakes that are just related to the plates moving and earthquakes that are, um, and if it's depending on the kind of plate boundary, they can also be related Mm. to volcanoes. So like, um, actually Iceland very much does have just faults that are not Mm. related to volcanoes. Um, there's this thing called the South Iceland Seismic Zone that runs kind of from the Reykjanes Peninsula over to about uh, Vik. And that has had a lot of sort of moderately large historic earthquakes um, that uh, are just related to the fact that the plates are moving and not specifically mm, to volcanoes. Um, and then there's also a, a, a fault zone kind of in the north, uh, the Husavik uh, Flate um, mm. fault zone that to my knowledge, hasn't had a large historic earthquake, but the potential is there. It definitely has them. Like uh, it's called Skelfandi Bay up there because of the earthquakes. Mm. <laughs> so, so there's plenty of potential for earthquakes without the volcanoes yeah. too. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. And how how much uh, can like computer modeling uh, predict where these different earthquakes can happen? It seems like. If I understand correctly, it's much more, you can have much better awareness of uh, where volcanic activity can happen based on modeling and and data and that sort of thing. But earthquakes can be much more of a surprise. Um, yeah. So we can figure out generally where earthquakes are possible because they happen on faults. Like earthquakes don't happen in mm-hmm. a vacuum. They happen on faults. You need a, a planar surface in the earth that can break mm-hmm. and slide to get a large earthquake. Um uh, that sometimes you don't know that there's a fault there until the right. earthquake happens, okay. which is the story of a lot of things uh, in California. Um, but 
the thing with earthquakes is like you can get a sense of where they're probably going to happen, but not when. And uh, that's going to end part one of this podcast episode. So you can listen to uh, part two uh, following this one. And if you want to stay connected with us, check out IcelandicRoots.com, which of course is the genealogy website, not geology website. But surprisingly, we do a like really good job of staying up to date with interesting information with regards to geology. Because after all, uh, human life is very much shaped by our geography. And finding a history and discovering a current culture of a place and a people uh, requires understanding the geography and land where those people and that culture is found. And very much so, the uh, Icelandic heritage is shaped by volcanic geological activity. Intricately interconnected as it all is.